This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, September 22nd. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, public health sees more students testing positive for COVID, redistricting on the horizon for San Miguel County, families who play together, and a mountain weather forecast. But first, a Pennsylvania man is in custody for allegedly shooting a bow hunter last week outside of Rico near the Kilpacker trailhead. Ronald Morosco was arrested for criminally negligent homicide. According to the Dolores County Sheriff's Office, Morosco was hunting the black powder rifle season when he shot Gregory Gabrich of Texas, who was archery hunting in the area. Gabrich was fatally wounded by the shot. Morosco is currently being held in Montezuma County Jail. The incident is still under investigation. Younger people in San Miguel County are testing positive for COVID-19. According to San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin, 14 cases from the past week of data are individuals under 18 years old. So it's really showing that um, our under, younger unvaccinated individuals are testing positive and spreading COVID. Franklin notes public health has been ramping up data collection within the Telluride School District to get a better sense of how COVID is spreading among young people. And it's really starting to show that when there's no masks or um, somebody is within six feet of somebody else, um, it really does make a difference. And those layers of protection really do count. Of course, those layers of protection are harder to manage once people get home. Household spread is currently the largest percentage of spread within the community. Once somebody in the household is um, tested positive for COVID, unless measures are taken very quickly, um, the likelihood of it spreading within the household is um, extremely high with adult there's been a lot of families that have been getting sick recently. However, she notes, statewide, it appears COVID cases are plateauing or decreasing slowly, an optimistic sign for the state. Outside of schools and homes, Franklin says based on state data looking at cell phone pings, residents across the state are engaging outside of home more than they did before the pandemic. Really, it just shows that we've returned to pre-pandemic um, uh, interactions, mobility, social lives, um, even though we do have a more contagious virus that um, is spreading among both vaccinated and unvaccinated. San Miguel County has had a mask mandate in place for indoor public spaces since the beginning of September, with the increase in cases among young people, a number of breakthrough cases, and high mobility. Franklin says it's not quite time to make a decision on continuing or repealing the mask mandate. When we do look at our um, overall case trends and seven-day case average, we're still in a pretty darn high um, disease burden across the county. Um, and um, we're definitely seeing the impacts of um, masks and the spread of the virus in our um, school age kids. Um, so I think there's a couple ways we can um, go about this. When thinking about continuing a mask mandate for County Commissioner Hillary Cooper, it's important to recognize masks help keep kids in school. One of the pieces that continues to stand out to me is, you know, keeping those kids in school and we are able to keep them in school if there's a classroom positive uh, and it is determined that masks are in place or social distancing of six feet is maintained at all times 
the classroom doesn't need to be quarantined and the rest of the kids can continue to go to school. And keeping masks on in kids in our classroom and yet not requiring it in a business or in a public meeting, et cetera, in town just seems hypocritical to me. Franklin and the Board of Public Health will discuss the future of the mask mandate in San Miguel County at their next meeting on Wednesday, September 29th. The current mask mandate runs through the end of the month. It's that time of the decade again. San Miguel County is once more discussing redistricting on the heels of the 2020 census. The federal government released county-level data from the nationwide population count earlier this year. Colorado counties are required to redraw their electoral districts based on the new data by September 30th, 2023. In our redistricting, we generally just use total population. I know some areas are calculating race data and ethnicity data in there to see what their balance is. And I can take a look at ours, but we tend to be heavily concentrated as a you know, a white county. That's Heather Woodland, Graphic Information Systems Coordinator for San Miguel County, speaking to the county commissioners about redistricting at a meeting this week. According to census data, between 2010 and 2020, the county population grew by a little less than 10 percent to roughly 8,100 people. That means each of the county's three districts should have about 2,690 people. New legislation at the State House has also outlined how much difference there can be between the districts. It used to be that that there was you just had to make the districts as equal in population as possible. And now they have specified a 5 percent deviation between the least and most populous districts. So we'll have to balance out um, each district to that standard. And the county can only redistrict in odd numbered years. Which doesn't mean we can't do it in 2021 but we can't do it in 2022. Since everyone in the county votes for each county commissioner rather than voting by district, the major change from the redistricting will be who is eligible to run for each district's commissioner seat. Woodland says county staff thinks they can complete the redistricting by the end of 2021. If they do, that would impact who is eligible to run for the District 2 commissioner seat in 2022. Currently, County Commissioner Lance Waring holds the position. The county commissioners support redistricting in 2021 if the county can do it. However, there were questions about deadlines that the county staff plans to look into to make sure they meet all requirements if they redistrict this year. The redistricting would have no impact on the upcoming November election. The county has also put together an interactive map to explore the 2020 census data available at tinyurl.com slash SMC census. Plays are a family affair at the Sheridan Arts Foundation next week. Before too long, parents and children will be gracing the Sheridan Opera House stage for the 7th annual Young People's Theater Parent-Kid Play. The kids are all the stars of the show, so the kids have those leading roles and the parents have all of the little supporting roles. That's Leah Heidenreich, Artistic Director of YPT. According to Heidenreich, the rehearsal process is fast and furious. She works with the young people for three weeks, plugging the parents in during one mega rehearsal. This year, the cast includes 11 students and 9 parents. Two sets of siblings are participating. 
When the families hit the stage, they will wow audiences with the tale of Robin Hood. Robin Hood and his merry band of men, they are a bunch of outlaws in Sherwood Forest in the county of Nottingham. There are twists and turns with evil Prince John and the impressive Maid Marian until the end. Robin Hood and Maid Marian, they... They fall in love and they fight and they defeat the evil sheriff of Nottingham and they defeat Lady Merle and everyone lives happily ever after. Of course, actors will bring their A-game to the stage, but in addition to the talent, Heidenreich says the parent-kid play is an opportunity for kids to show their parents their world. And it's like a really cool way for them to get to experience that with their parents, but kind of be the ones taking the lead. They kind of get to be the ones who who are showing their parents their world. You know what I mean? Getting to, to show the parents something that, and experience something that is really important to them. And it stretches the parents potentially past their immediate comfort zone. One half is like the parents who, they grew up doing theater, they love theater, they're excited to get on stage with their kid. And then you have the other side of the parents who have never done theater, never even stepped foot in a theater, don't, you know, like... That that world of performance art has never been a thing for them, but for some reason their child has a flair for it, and so they're doing it because they're going to support their kid, <laughs> but they have no clue what's going on. Um, so it's just a really fun mix. This year, youth actors grade 3 to 6 include Brielle Geisler, Lila Goldberg, Raft and Riker Herzog, Molly and Rita Hines, Vivian Julia, Luke Niehaus, Camille Skinner, Emerson Souls, Josie Ward, and their nine theater parents. The parent kid play production of Robin Hood will take place at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 28th at the Sheridan Opera House. The play is free and open to the public. Masks are required. Pioneer Day is here. Norwood's 85th annual celebration of heritage and community will take place this weekend. Johnny and Charlotte Royer will be crowned as Pioneer Day royalty. There will also be a parade, chuck wagon dinner, and field games at the Norwood School. Pioneer Day celebrations will take place on Saturday, September 25th, starting at 10.30 a.m. in Norwood. Telluride Real Estate is joining the Forbes brand. Forbes Global Properties recently announced Telluride Real Estate Corp. has joined its curated marketplace for luxury homes. Forbes Global Properties lists homes across the world from Dubai to Toronto, France to Telluride. Prices range from $1.3 million for a condo or plot of land in Telluride to a $250 million compound in Beverly Hills. Economists at the state capitol are boosting their revenue expectations despite a summer wave of coronavirus cases. More jobs are being recovered and income tax collections continue to exceed the state's expectations. That means lawmakers are expecting more than $300 million more million in their budget for next year. But economists are warning them the Delta variant is starting to have an impact. While some areas are rebounding, like bars and restaurants, there are also concerns about ongoing labor shortages. This week, we are taking an in-depth look at how policing in Boulder has changed over the past year. While many protesters and advocates have called for major reforms, like defunding the police, other kinds of change are more subtle, slow-moving, and deeply personal. 
As Scott Franz reports, at one apartment complex in Boulder where crime rate is high, the question on the minds of residents is how much policing is the right amount? On a warm summer afternoon, people are out and about at the San Juan del Centro apartments. It's lively. On a good day, it's fun. Sonia Sarabia has been raising her four children in this mostly Hispanic and Latino apartment complex for 14 years. It was Boulder's first low-income subsidized housing when it was built 50 years ago. As we walk around the open space in the middle of the sprawling complex of two-story red and green buildings, we see dozens of children climbing on a playground, and the oldest residents are sitting at a small picnic table nearby playing Lotteria, a Spanish card game similar to bingo. Hola, buenas. Oh, they're asking if you're going to bring the money to play. <laughs> too, too high stakes for me. <laughs> Sarabia knows all of these women very well. The San Juan community is tight-knit, and she trusts most of her neighbors. Even with our kids, um, if, we, if even one of us have to go run an errand, you can ask your neighbor, hey, can you watch out my kid for five minutes? I'll be right back. But when Sarabia tells other people she lives here, these are not the first things that come to mind. They think that just because we live in San Juan that we're drug dealers, that we um, have guns, that we beat up people. <laughs> that it's, But it's not. like It's something that we got stereotyped because of what happened 20 years ago. According to a memo written by a cop assigned to the complex, things got so bad and violent here in the 1980s, police were not allowed to patrol the area without backup. In the 1990s, a 16-year-old shot another boy in the face with a handgun. A police report at the time labeled the community as a, quote, haven for criminal activity. Still, these days, when the card games end and everyone goes inside, that's when Sarabia says she starts to get nervous. People start coming and trying to steal things from our cars. Like a package containing her mom's medical equipment this year. During an earlier interview on Zoom from her bedroom, Sarabia was more blunt about the security situation. Some people are way too violent, which a lot of them have moved. But when they, some of them, they're still giving them chances, which it's not helpful for the community. She says people are frustrated about how sometimes they'll file police reports and then nothing happens, while others fear that even calling police could get undocumented immigrants living here in trouble. 911 calls from this apartment complex have nearly tripled since 2017. And for the last three years, it's been Officer Raul Montano's job to try to turn things around. We try to connect with people. We try to make sure the people are not seeing us there as a law enforcement capacity all the time, trying to enforce the law, but also as a resource. Montano is part of a team of officers who regularly patrol this area. He grew up in Mexico, which he says helps him connect with the residents. I feel like it's easier for me to build reporters going in there and speaking the language, speaking Spanish to them and knowing where they came from and them knowing where I came from. You know, it's just, it, I feel like you're able to build that connection easier. And that's unique for the Boulder Police, which had only 7% of its officers identify as Hispanic last year. Still, there's tension. People try to push your buttons, you know, tell me, like, race traitor and all this other stuff, you know, obviously, because they think because we're the same race or the same heritage, they're going to get free passes, you know, but I learned how to adapt to that. 
Figuring this out is important to Montano. He says growing up, his family distrusted the police and would not report crimes because of that stigma. Montano's team included four officers when it started. But because a lot of other officers have left the department recently due to stressors related to COVID and the statewide effort to reform policing, Montano says his team is now half the size, and he's not sure how much longer he'll be on the beat. If staffing keeps decreasing, we might get pulled back to go back and patrol citywide. But at the end of the day, what success will really mean to me is if there's no need for police presence there at all. Meanwhile, Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold is working on a new strategy for the San Juan Apartments, one that does not depend as much on sending more officers to the area, essentially less policing, something many communities have been pushing for since last summer's protests. It's part of a broader reform effort that started two years ago after an officer wrongfully pulled a gun on a black man who was picking up trash outside of his dorm at Naropa University. In your neighborhood, would you want the police there, you know, on the hour, every hour? It would be really weird, wouldn't it? And that thinking is a departure from her predecessors, who opened a police office inside the San Juan apartment complex in the 1990s and ramped up patrols after a similar spike in calls to police. Harold is convinced that a fresh look at crime data will eventually eliminate the need for a permanent police presence. What we do know is that many of the calls are for assaults and domestic violence. There's a small number of units that are contributing to a larger proportion of the calls for service. So we have to get in there and figure out why. Do they need services? She calls this tactic crime science. Harold used a similar data-driven approach in Cincinnati to tackle a spike in shootings. I will guarantee you by the time we're done with our analysis, I'll be able to pinpoint specific units that are contributing to the overall problems in San Juan. And then the way we we're looking at domestic violence, will I be able to collaborate with people that can actually stop the cycle of domestic violence? I will be able to do that. But first, she is working to empower the property managers and residents to help change the trajectory. When she toured the apartments herself earlier this year, it caused a bit of a stir. It also revealed some of the challenges that lie ahead. Trust from the community, uh, Hispanic community to the police, there are a big gap in between. Luz Galicia is a housing organizer who has been working to improve the security situation at the apartments for the last two years. She said some residents were initially suspicious when they saw the city's top cop in their neighborhood. We got a few phone calls and say, what are they doing here? So we explained. I was able to explain they're doing this. Maybe from the kids was like a oops. There are going to be more police patrols around. Now I have to be in my house where my parents asked me to be. But for the parents of this community, it was a relief to know that there were more um, uh, patrols, security patrols. Galicia also helped the San Juan community create a brand new leadership council, or a more informal homeowners association to advocate for the residents. That led to the group sending a letter to the property manager of the San Juan del Centro Apartments, with a long list of concerns ranging from broken locks in common areas to drug deals in parking lots. My dream is to work in collaboration with them because if you just work with one part of the team, it's gonna be hard. Galicia says many residents are also asking for more help from the police department. The pandemic interrupted another series of meetings this year that were going to connect residents with law enforcement. 
but new connections are still being made over Zoom. Well, now Chief Harold knows that there is a problem, but she's no, she doesn't have magic. And that includes elevating residents like Sonia Sarabia, who says she will keep speaking out about the security concerns, despite worries she will ruffle some feathers. We reached out to several other San Juan residents and the property manager, but Sarabia was the only one to come forward. She's viewed as a spokesperson for residents about their security concerns. I want to help my community and for my community to feel safe again and be able to walk at any time of the night and feel like, oh no, nothing's going to happen to me. That's what the what I wish for. And at a time many are calling to defund and limit police presence, Sarabia is asking Chief Harold for the opposite. We want for them to be present. And that's what, um, that's our next step, to get more of our residents to get together and then talk to arrange a meeting with her so we can start taking action. Meanwhile, Chief Harold says the city has assigned a new data analyst who is diving deeper into the calls at the apartment complex to help guide a more targeted approach. And they're actively shifting to less policing, instead bringing in social workers and other city departments to take on some of those roles. Scott Franz, KUNC. The KUNC series Under Pressure continues on Friday with a look at why so many officers are getting out of policing and what the Boulder Police Department is trying to do differently to fill those positions. Drought remains widespread across the Southwest, even after a wet monsoon season in parts of the region. As Alex Hager reports, federal forecasters are looking at more dry months ahead. Parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah got double or triple the expected amount of rain through the middle of the summer, but it wasn't enough to fend off historic levels of drought. Steph McAfee is the Nevada state climatologist. She says that's left many reservoirs far lower than usual. It's particularly dire in places like Arizona and Nevada. Just if you're curious, we now have two reservoirs in Nevada that are at two and four percent of their capacity. Yeah, it's dry, but that's odd even for us. McAfee says the effects of drought go beyond water storage, increasing the risk of wildfire, threatening hydropower generation and harming wildlife and agriculture. Forecasters expect drought in the southwest to persist. They predict hotter-than-normal temperatures and lower-than-normal snow and rain through the end of the year. I'm Alex Hager. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-40s. Thursday should be mostly sunny during the day and mostly clear at night, with a high in the mid-60s and a low around 45 degrees. Friday calls for sunny skies with a high near 70 degrees. Friday night, expect clear skies with a low near 45. This has been the news for Wednesday, September 22nd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hi, this is Laura with a roundup of events coming up this week at Wilkinson Public Library. On Thursday at 5.30, learn about the origins of manga and anime with UCL professor and WPL's own Alice Martin's son, Casey Martin. He'll talk about the birth and evolution of both art forms and highlight some of manga and anime's most influential artists. Go from Bitcoin to Beatcoin on Friday at 1 o'clock on the library terrace. 
Slow Money Institute founder Woody Tash looks at the rolling disaster that's been 2020 and 2021 and knows that slow money needs to move faster. That's part of the thinking behind the Bitcoin, a crowdfunding model for supporting local farms. And his new book, Aha! Fake Trillions, Real Billions, Bitcoin, and the Great American Do-Over. On Sunday, we are bringing back Mariachi de San Jose to the Transfer Warehouse in celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. If you saw this amazing band from Grand Junction last year, then you know it's not to be missed. And if you missed it, here's your chance. The show is free and open to all. We'll even have free food. There will be Loteria games starting at 3.30, and the music starts at 4.30. This has been a roundup of events brought to you by your local public library. Go to telluridelibrary.org for more information. As always, thanks for listening, and thank you, Kodo. Hey there, listeners. It's Sarah Holbrook, the executive director of the Pinhead Institute, providing STEM education in Telluride and all over rural southwestern Colorado. Our space story for you today is about the Viper. That's a uh, spacecraft that's going to be landing on the moon and exploring for water ice or water vapor. Um, And they've just recently identified the crater where Viper is going to land and be exploring for water ice sometime in late 2023. Why am I telling you this story now? Because I'm thinking about astronauts. We have a wonderful astronaut, former astronaut, who just recently visited the Telluride Mountain School and the Telluride High School. And uh, Brewster Shaw is next going to be going to Norwood and to Nucleus schools to talk about a life, um, you know, kind of trying to travel into outer space. It's pretty cool. Um, What else is cool is that our intern presentations are coming up, so I really don't want you to miss them. We will be live streaming them on Facebook Live, so you could just, uh, I don't know what, friend us, follow us on Facebook and see them live as they happen. It's next Wednesday, the 29th of September. Uh, Afternoon presentations are from 3.30 to 5.30, and then nighttime presentations from about 6.45 to 8.30. We're mixing it up this year. We're taking our out-of-town kids, throwing them in with the Telluride kids. Some go in the afternoon, some go in the evening. You can listen to Adriana from Olathe talking about aerospace engineering. Amelie from Telluride talking about virtual reality filmmaking. Angel from Nucla talking about forensic entomology. Anna from Ridgeway talking about computational biology. Avery from Cortez talking about surgery. Ayla from Telluride talking about neuroscience. Chloe from Telluride talking about marine biology. Chris from Ridgeway talking about aerospace engineering. Corbin from Montrose talking about quantum physics. Cutler from Ridgeway talking about astrophysics and astronomical polarimetry. Polarimetry, there we go. We're Didi from Telluride talking about marine invertebrate conservation. We also have Emery from Telluride talking about environmental science. Francesca from Telluride talking about the Rodham Institute. Uh, Jaden from Telluride talking about virology. John from Telluride talking about data analysis. Kaiser from Telluride talking about uh, private placement. Kaylee from Telluride talking about agriculture and food production. Kate from Montrose talking about the neuroscience of addiction. Levi from Dolores talking about uh, retail brokerage. Lily from Telluride talking about neuroscience. Logan from Telluride talking about chemistry. Lulu from Telluride talking about anthropogenic pollutants. Michael from Telluride talking about agriculture and food production. Sammy from Norwood talking about marine biology. Sarah from Telluride talking about marine biology. And Tessa from Montrose talking about environmental engineering. Don't miss out next Wednesday, September 29th. 
in the Opera House or live streaming on Facebook. Thanks so much. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Cotto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.